Hello there, theater lovers. It's me, Bryn. I'm so excited for you guys to listen to this, the finale episode of season two. Yeah, you heard me right. This is the finale of season two. It has been almost a year since I started this podcast, and I am so excited that there are so many of you out there who are listening. You guys keep me going. For this week's announcements, I'm actually just going to encourage you to look for theater near you because, well, if you're where I am, East Coast in America, theater is opening up. There are quite a lot of street performances and outdoor performances going on, so go. Like, go. Go support your community theaters, man. Go have a good time. Enjoy your summer. And as always, if you want to look for some digital theater, I always recommend The Tank. They have a whole Cyber Tank tab and New Dramatists as well. So without further ado, let's get into the world of Beth by Alex Lynn. Alex Lynn, she, her, is an award-nominated Asian-American playwright, screenwriter, and journalist. As an ex-STEM kid from Bergen County, her work is powered by a drive to bridge the gap between the science and entertainment industries. Her plays have been developed and produced with Women's Theatre Festival, The Rude Mechanicals, Central Square Theatre, Actors Theatre of Louisville, University of Idaho, The Coop, and Pace University. She is a 2020 Pass the Pen nominee at Ashland New Plays Festival, a 2020 Screencraft Stage Play semifinalist, and a 2021 Lanford Wilson American New Plays Festival semifinalist. Lynn is also a member of the Coop's Cluster F-U-C-K, <laughs> Page Break, and the 2020-2021 Asian American Arts Alliance Virtual Residency. As a space journalist with A24 Films media outlet Supercluster, she's had the privilege of working with former astronauts, NASA executives, Hollywood actors, writers, and directors, as well as SpaceX, Boeing, and Netflix to bridge the gap between scientific discovery and the popular culture it influences. She is also an executive producer for the Supercluster series Real Astronaut, Play Astronaut bringing real life and silver screen astronauts together in conversation. Lynn has also covered several spaceflight missions, including DM2 and Crew-1. As such, Lynn is a three-time Reddit r slash space number one front pager, which is like the bare minimum at this point, considering how much time she wasted scrolling through r am I the asshole as a neurotic teen. Here is a short summary of Beth from New Play Exchange. Overachiever teens fight for their lives, literally, over one thing and one thing only. The Intel International Science and Engineering Fair's $75,000 grand prize. A decidedly 21st century Asian-American Macbeth adaptation. As with all adaptations I've covered on this podcast, we're going to start by going over the source material for this play. Shakespeare's Macbeth. Macbeth was written in 1606, inspired by Holinshed's Chronicles of Scotland, after Elizabeth I had died and James I took the throne. Along with becoming the new King of England, James I also became the patron of Shakespeare's company, The King's Men. 
This may not seem relevant, but trust me, it is. If you don't know, James I was Scottish. Not only that, but the character of Banquo was a real Scottish nobleman that James claimed descent from. Good old Will also took James' preoccupations with the supernatural into account. According to Columbia University, quote, the central thematic tropes in the play, the specter of treason, the psychological and social impact of regicide, the precariousness of power, and the demonic potential of the supernatural are all subjects that occupied the king. Shakespeare wrote Macbeth with his patron clearly in mind. Columbia University also notes that James I was known to believe heavily in the divine right of kingship, and so thought of regicide as a cardinal sin, because, you know, you're murdering a dude that God himself supposedly plopped down on the throne. He also lived in constant fear of his life and experienced multiple assassination attempts. We can assume due to this information that James I probably identified with King Duncan, who Macbeth murders near the beginning of the play. Seeing Macbeth then get his comeuppance through the death at Macduff's hands would also satisfy James's desire to see those who commit or attempt to commit regicide punished. However, this is only one side to the Macbeth story. As stated by Dr. Tarini Mukherjee, it would be problematic to read the play as an unequivocal tribute to England's new king. It is the paradoxical and incongruous nature of the play that makes it compelling and ensures it against any such simplistic reading. The Folger Shakespeare states that, quote, In earlier centuries, Macbeth's story was seen as a powerful study of a heroic individual who commits an evil act and pays an enormous price as his conscience and the natural forces for good in the universe destroy him. More recently, his story has been applied to nations that overreach themselves, his speeches of despair quoted to show that Shakespeare shared present-day feelings of alienation. In the original Macbeth story from the aforementioned Hollinshed's Chronicles of Scotland, Duncan isn't a great king. He's quote-unquote weak and ineffective as a leader, despite being a pretty good dude. But Shakespeare changes that character and makes him into not only a good man, but a good king. Therefore, when Macbeth murders him, it is all the more tragic and immoral. Professor Susan Snyder stated that, In adapting the story of Macbeth from Hollinshed's Chronicles of Scotland, Shakespeare created a stark black-white moral opposition, one that was not there in the original text. I would keep this in mind just as we continue to discuss Lynn's adaptation, because this idea of like very binary ideas of morality comes into play. Now let's talk about the driving force behind all of the characters in this play, the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. So according to the Institute of Competition Sciences, the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, or Intel ISEF is a program of Society for Science and the public, parentheses the society, is the world's largest international pre-college science competition. It is hosted in a different city each year. It was started in 1950 by the Society for Science and has been sponsored by the Intel Corporation since 1997. So it's been known as the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair since then. To 
compete, students must submit their original research projects to affiliated science fairs to reach the regional, state, and then international levels. There are 21 different categories of competition, all with their own criteria. There are the categories that we would normally think of for science fairs and competitions, such as chemistry, microbiology, and physics and astronomy, as well as categories that you probably wouldn't think of unless you were a STEM student, such as embedded systems, biomedical engineering, and straight up just math, <laughs> which is not something I would have realized could be a category for a science fair, but yeah. On the Society for Science website, you can find subcategories within each of these 21 categories as well. The rules of, for this competition are long, long, and detailed. There's a whole ethics statement, of course, to prevent plagiarism and such, as well as sections on eligibility, general requirements, approval and documentation, digital paperwork and signatures, progression of projects, and team projects. These kids are competing to win insane amounts of money and almost guaranteed admission to any college they want, so it's understandable that these rules are extremely thorough. Oh, also, those are just the rules for all projects. There are multiple other rules documents depending on what type of project you are completing. Yeah, lots of rules. And now the specific award that the students in Beth are competing for is the Gordon E. Moore Award, which is for $75,000. There are more awards than just this one, including the Intel Foundation Young Scientist Award, which gains the awardee $50,000. But the top award for the most money is the one that our characters are fixated on. All right, so before we move on to the reading portion, I want to go through the characters in Beth and connect them to the characters in Macbeth, just for ease of understanding in the uh, discussion and interview section. Some of the characters in Beth represent two or more characters from the original. At least, it seems to me that way. All right, so Beth is obviously Macbeth. That pretty much speaks for itself. Danny, her ex, is Duncan but I think also has an element of Lady Macbeth. Might just be because they're romantically involved a little bit that I think that, but who knows. B, Beth's good friend, is Banquo, and also a little bit Lady Macbeth, I believe, just because she's the one who convinces Beth that she doesn't need Danny. You know, kind of in the similar way that Lady Macbeth convinces Macbeth to kill Duncan. I don't know. We'll see what Alex thinks. <laughs> Duffy, Danny's stepsister, is definitely Macduff. Ross, who is an awkward boy with a crush on Beth, is the character of the exact same name from Macbeth, who is a Scottish nobleman. Lenny is Lennox, another Scottish nobleman. Don is Donalbane, I think, who is, you know, the son of Duncan in the original Macbeth. Mel, the class president, is probably Malcolm. It just makes a lot of sense. And then there's Angie. To be quite honest, I'm not sure who her original character inspiration was. Perhaps she is a double of Donalby? Well, maybe Alex will clear it up for us. We'll see. And finally, my favorite. The Weird Sisters are the three Weird Sisters from the original text. And this may seem plain and simple, but trust me when I say Alex gave the Weird Sisters a new life in her adaptation. 
And now it's time for our reading portion. Please welcome Nina Key to the podcast. She will be reading a monologue as Beth. But first, a word from our sponsors. And now, Nina Key performing a monologue from Beth as the character, Beth. It's not just about winning, you fucking pea-brained sociopath. It's about science and math. The two most structured, tangible, real things that exist. When a tree falls in a forest, it's not because it just felt like doing it. It's because of the Earth's gravitation pull. Gravity is an inevitable force, drawing two opposing objects closer and closer together until they collide. Gravity weighs down on these trees, upends their roots, and causes structural instabilities that send them crashing into the ground. And that is what you are. That is what you are, Danny. You are gravity. You are a structural instability, infecting every last good part of me with the sound of your own stupidity. But gravity is also the weakest of the physical forces, and I am not about to be grounded by a weak fucking force. Danny. Thank you so much, Nina, for that chilling performance. If anyone would like to contact Nina with professional inquiries only, you can find her contact information in the show notes of this episode. And now I'd love to welcome the playwright herself, Alex Lynn. I'm so excited to have her here with us today. And I already gave you her bio in the dramaturgy section. So without further ado, here she is. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Hey, I'm so happy to be here. I'm doing great. How are you doing, Bryn? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. It's the weekend, so much better than weekdays. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Oh Absolutely. my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I've just been vibing summer. It's been hot and rainy though, right? Yeah, it's like, been pretty, pretty brutal. Um, I think the, uh, I, I don't know where you're based exactly, but I think the uh, tropical storm Elsa recently yeah. passed through. <laughs> yeah, she murdered us. Uh, that was over. <laughs> yeah, I work outside. So that was that was a fun Thursday. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yep. Imagine me huddling under a little uh, little tent in the middle of the rain. Oh, no. Yep. That was that was my Thursday. <laughs> oh, dear God, help us. <laughs> yeah, God. Though, it was like the perfect vibes to be reading this play, I think, rereading oh, it yes. for the second time uh, last week. And <laughs> so mm -hmm. it kind of fit, which, yeah. so that was fun, um, especially because like th this play is an adaptation of Macbeth. I say that in the dramaturgy section, we go over Macbeth. Uh, but just that reminder, it is Macbeth. Um, <laughs> just in case you forgot. Just in case you forgot. Um, and yeah, I know it's July and it's summer. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, yes, let's read Midsummer Night's Dream. But I'm like, no, <laughs> let's do mm -hmm. Macbeth. Because, ooh, I love those dark and like uh, slightly spooky vibes. Love it. Yes. Um, especially the way you write it is not something I ever would have thought to do because it's a high school adaptation of Macbeth. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, and I just wanted to know what inspired you to write a high school adaptation of Macbeth yeah. of all Shakespeare plays. I, I have to be honest, it did come from another high school adaptation that does exist by mm-hmm. um, G. Hay Park, Peerless. And it was one of the first plays I read where I actually felt like, oh my God, I know who these people are and they're they're me. They're exactly how I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and no, no, like, shade to Jihei Park or anything. I love all of her work. But as I was reading it, I just couldn't stop thinking, I, like, need to fix it. Like, not, <laughs> not that, like, it was a broken play, but I was mm-hmm. like, there's just so much more in here that I, I personally mm-hmm. know about with all the dynamics with the kids and their friends and everything. And, and um yeah, this idea of performance in school. I just wanted to write my own version. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Uh, as a hashtag former burnt out gifted kid, I totally yes. – this this play definitely, like, kicked me in the gut a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I think we like to try and push away some of those uh, – that those memories from high school. Yes. Where yes. – yeah, because there's there is there's a lot of pressure on uh, STEM kids, especially, but on on the kids that are labeled smart or gifted. Right. It's a lot of pressure. And right. this play did it reminded me of that, but in like a gut punchy, like really interesting, not traumatic way. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> and it's something I wanted to focus on with this adaptation in particular because I as I was thinking about like adapting it and like what the whole idea behind that pressure is, mm-hmm. I really wanted to tap into like the human element of it. Like why, why, why is it as a kid, do you feel like you have to perform so well? Yeah. Usually because of your family. Yeah. It's just that very like deep rooted, like, God, I have to make something of myself. And my family mm-hmm. did so much for me and sacrificed so much for me. I, the least I could do is at least be successful and make money. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the ultimate lie of capitalism, really. Oh, yes. But um, yeah. So that's, that's what I went into this adaptation with. Yeah. Wow. And it's really powerful the way that you, it, that, I'm trying to find words, but yeah, like I can sense that in the, in the play Mm -hmm. and it's one of the driving forces and it feels very authentic. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) yeah, no problem. Yes. This, a lot of my interviews are uh, me just fangirling. uh, So excuse me. Um, But yeah, your dialogue, especially your dialogue, super great. It actually sounds like teenagers talk um, because something I find with a lot of uh, plays about teenagers is that sometimes we, uh, I think we we don't write them how they actually sound. Uh, And you do. They sound, it sounds like how I hear like my teenage students talk to each other, which was really refreshing. And something I noticed about uh, the dialogue, especially, was there's a complete lack of capitalization and mm-hmm. punctuation. And I was wondering what led you to that stylistic choice. I think I like that the the lack of allows there to be a little bit more freedom creatively, I think, for the actors. Not that I'm, like, exactly, like, spoon-feeding them anything. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I like that the lack of capitalization strips down to the bare text because when the moments that I do choose to have something capitalized or do choose to have some punctuation, it's very apparently intentional. And I like that they that is an easy way for the tone to shift and change mm. and to express when something is going on with a character. Because when you have a snare to script, this is just my opinion, so no shade mm-hmm. to anybody that does this. I feel like when I ever I have tried to write with a standard script in the right format, I'm doing air quotes, you guys can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> in the correct format, with capitalization, proper grammar, whatever, what have you. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like something about it is just dead. Oh. <laughs> something about it just, it, it, for me, it just yeah. seems dead. Mm. Uh, or, or like it's just, it's just a skeleton. And mm. I, I like personally with my formatting to express how the play feels to mm. me. And to me, this play felt like it should be in mostly lowercase. I also just kind of felt it fit like the energy of these kids that I was thinking about, their sort of generation, very popular to just not (laughs) uh, have any punctuation and just do everything in lowercase. So it felt like it felt stylistically like that that is what the play needed. Yeah. And speaking of that, I think that might be another reason it felt so much like things teenagers would actually say, because it's how a lot of young people write text messages or um, write emails or write captions on like Instagram or TikTok. Yeah. I didn't even realize that until you mentioned that, but you're right. Yeah. I think that contributes a lot to the tone in a very effective way. I have Tumblr.com to thank for that. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, yes. I spent a lot of years on that website as well. So oh, I yeah. completely understand that influence. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if the kids, the ki- any kids listening know Tumblr.com, but oh man, that was a, uh, that was an experience as a high yes. schooler. That sure was an experience. It's <laughs> coming back because I, I do Is have a 13 year old younger sister and she does use it, but oh. I guess it's mostly for images now. Like people oh. don't really, it's sort of like transitioned into like a Pinterest style. Ah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I sort see. of platform. No longer. So there's a revival yes. of Tumblr. Yes. Back in, back in my day, it was a bunch of unhinged text posts. Um, oh, yeah. It's like five million posts long. Oh, God. Yeah. And then you had to like, scroll up all the way to like yes. blog something. Oh, my God. It was insane. Oh, yeah. kids nowadays don't know how social media used to be. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I also I really love the moments in this play when I could tell you found an idea uh, mm-hmm. in the inspiration text, especially. And uh you wanted to expand upon it, and then you did. And mm-hmm. I was in love with the witches, the weird sisters. Yes. I love them so much. I love them in the original text, and I'm always so sad that they're only they only have like three scenes, maybe I think. Um, but you pulled them in a lot more, and I think it it helped with the atmosphere. Number one, and number two, they just it gave the play uh, like a sort of narrator type thing. It can. I don't know. I think it was a really interesting way to uh, incorporate the characters in a way that also contributed to structure. I think if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yes. I'm rambling. <laughs> it's okay. I love it. <laughs> but uh, these ideas like the witches, were those ideas something you went into the first draft with or were they things that you like kind of discovered as you were 
creating that first draft. I think truly the witches was like, the witches in particular was something mm-hmm. that I started with because even when reading Peerless, I, I obviously I was happy that the two twins are Asian American. That thrilled mm-hmm. me. But I, I also just thought about my own high school, which was, I think some, when I went there anyway, it was something around like 40% Asian. Wow. It was really, really, really heavily Asian, which is not super common in the area that I'm from. And Mm -hmm. I think it's because it was a magnet school and it pulled kids from all around the county. And, you know, like there is like the, the, the stereotype that honestly in my experiences have some truth with it where Asian American families will like push their children to mm-hmm. you know succeed academically so there were a lot of Asian kids in my school mm-hmm. um but like we weren't a monolith you know yeah. we were all extremely different like there was like the bible Asian there was like the the goth Asian the e-girl Asian the math Asian lacrosse Asian jock Asian like because <laughs> we're people well yeah uh, <laughs> all, like different things you know mm-hmm. um so th- the witches in particular i really wanted to show the diversity of personality in the asian american community um I, it's it's funny to me that that is like a radical thing that mm. is not like done super often but i'm <laughs> glad that more people are doing it yeah. um suffice to say the witches were an idea for me like even before I really figured out a lot of the other characters, to be honest with you. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I guess it makes sense because of how they kind of tie things together and narrate almost. Yeah. That kind yeah. of makes sense. Yeah. And I, I love that each the because in the original text, they're kind of like they talk over each other yeah. and finish each other's sentences. They almost seem like a like a monolith. But yours yeah. are very, especially you differentiate them. In the list of characters, the beginning of the show, Mm -hmm. you differentiate them in style and in personality already. And then we we see that in their dialogue throughout. And I like that they're separate because it's a more dynamic group if they're not all the same. Yeah, exactly. It gives some more flesh and bone to um, what are what really is like an an ensemble Mm -hmm. role. The most most productions of Macbeth I see anyway, the witches are very, very, very similar, which I think like adds their creepiness. Like that's cool. But I just I personally felt there was more potential to play with them a little bit more in this world. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, they they were one of my favorite parts of it, I think. just <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I love them. Yeah, I know. Like, I, I love them. They were just so great. And they had this... They had a spooky vibe, you know, because they had things they would repeat and they mm-hmm. always, you know, you could tell they knew things. And of course, the whole thing at the beginning where they're like cutting out rats' tongues and stuff like, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're spooky for sure. But they're also kids when they like uh, the one girl quotes Macbeth at the very beginning of the show. And she's yes. like, what are you talking about? What are you saying? Stop that. You're yes. weird. <laughs> so they have that element of spookiness and like omniscientness almost but they're also just kids yes which is fantastic oh yes yes. (laughs) and going on with they're just kids I feel like a lot of people's like initial idea if I said to them high school adaptation of Macbeth they would probably take out a lot of the violence 
or they would mm-hmm. imagine a show uh, where a lot of that drama is uh, put in in an, another way. Uh, but yours doesn't do that. And I actually really appreciated that um, because mm-hmm. the stakes are high and they stay high. Like I'm on the edge of my seat reading this play the entire time through however hundred pages, I think it is approximately. And mm-hmm. I know that can be a difficult thing to approach writing violence in general, but writing violence between minors, between high schoolers, how did you approach mm-hmm. that? Um, well, I think high school is an inherently violent experience. Uh, not not to like knock high school or anything. I have many positive memories of high school, as mm-hmm. I'm sure many people do. But it is violent. Yeah. Um, not just like physically violent. Sometimes, I mean, you hear about like schoolyard fights and whatever, and yeah. like you know stuff like that. Because kids are kids. Like they yeah. don't know how to regulate themselves yet. But no. I mean, going off of regulation, it's also emotionally violent. Yeah. It's socially incredibly violent, and. I don't know. There's a reason there's the trope, but like you go to therapy and the therapist is like, okay, like, where is this root coming from? And you have the trope of the person saying, oh, I just think those girls in high school, yeah, those girls in high school mess me up. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's like a, a, a traumatic experience, not to make light of the word trauma or anything, but mm-hmm. it shapes who you are. Yeah. And any kind of metamorphosis like that, there's inherently like some kind of violence. There's some kind of loss of like the person you were before. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that is that is just a fact. I, it's kind of like the law of conservation of mass. <laughs> like yeah. to have something added, something needs to be taken away. Like things just don't come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I kept the violence in there. I guess mostly the emotional violence. I I just personally remember when I was that age, everything felt so extreme. And it's not that it's not that that wasn't like the reality, you know, maybe maybe like with perspective, as you get older, you're like, oh, God, why was I so upset about that when I was a kid? Like now it just seems so silly. But for you in that moment, it's very, very real. Yeah. And everything you're feeling is extremely real yeah it just it feels that high stakes and it and because it feels that way it is that Mm -hmm. that's kind of the thing that bothers me sometimes about when I do read people writing for teens Mm -hmm. and it feels something about it feels very stale something about it feels like a caricature which it's like I understand that people have their opinions about young people but Mm -hmm. I just remember how I felt when I was that age it felt so real yeah and I just I just think we would all do well to respect that in teenagers, especially. It's not easy being a teenager. Hell no. <laughs> the world is like falling apart as a new one is being built in front of you. Yeah. You're at like the, you're at the liminal space between childhood and adulthood. And it's very confusing because you're finding out a lot of the things you were told as a child are not true. Yeah. And you're trying to cope with that. So that's my very long-winded answer to your question. No, I love <laughs> that. Be as long-winded as you want. I'll listen. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, and that I think that's a really good point to make is that the transition between childhood and adulthood, any transition really, but that one especially, it's so huge. There's grief involved. There's anger involved. There's frustration. Of course, there's going to be especially emotionally some sort of violence and Mm -hmm. in this play we're just seeing that come out into the world instead of staying within the characters 
Yeah. Yeah, because I know when I first read the uh, little blurb you have on New Play Exchange about it, I was like, oh, oh, okay, cool. I'm sure like, yeah, maybe they get into fights. Maybe some people, you know, end up in the hospital. Ooh, but then it was like, oh, no, she just pushed a dude out a window. <laughs> and he's dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is getting intense. But it's like, yeah, it can feel that, especially when you are a child who is – uh in that track uh, in a magnet school or on a gifted track yeah. or on that um i forget what they call it nowadays uh the like presidential the big old like college pre-college track stuff it's, oh yes yeah like it's yeah. rough man that's mm -hmm. like I, and I imagine it only gets harder i'll be i'll be it probably in different ways than it was back when we were in high school but i can imagine it only yeah. gets harder yeah so it, i think yeah. it does <laughs> yeah especially yeah i mean capitalism is destroying everything so i can imagine there's a lot of uh fear involved yeah as well and see it's it, and because of that i think this play feels authentic even though kids are literally like well kids uh kid is murdering people it yes. it feels yeah it, it feels like oh this could actually happen I feel like this isn't super fantastical out there. Like I could see yeah. this actually happening. Yeah. Which is scary. Yeah. In a way. I think in our society, children would absolutely be pushed to that point. I obviously hope that doesn't well, happen. Yeah. <laughs> it would be pretty bad. Yeah. But, you know, there's I can even just speak for my high school. There was such a, a, a pressure put on getting into a good college, especially in Ivy League. And, of course, you have to do so much to be even considered at this point because so many people in droves are going to college now and they, mm -hmm. everybody wants to go to the best one. Mm -hmm. There's this scarcity mindset of there's only so many slots. Yeah. And I do want to say, especially when you are a, uh, a non-white person, you are competing against everybody else in your demographic. Mm -hmm. You don't have the luxury of being viewed as a neutral student. Yeah, You have to be better than every other Asian or better than every other black person or better than every other Latinx person. Yeah, That's who you're competing against. So it's, again, this like just very toxic triangulation yeah. <laughs> of things that are happening. Yeah. Um, but that, that's something I wanted to get into with this play. I mean, there was just so much competition between the Asian kids at our school to get into like Harvard or Yale or, you know, even for Intel, because that's a, yeah. that's a real competition. Yep. Intel's a real competition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's called Regeneron now. They got a yes. new donor. But um, anywho, we were even told by the guidance counselors, you know, like you have to be better than XYZ person. Jeez. And it was usually like another Asian person. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's, it's, it's like, I, I can't even, can't even really blame the guidance counselors for saying that because that's the truth. Mm. That's the way that the, the admission system works. <laughs> works. Yeah. We're being compared to each other. Yeah. So it, it, uh, that in and of itself is violent. I think. Yeah. It's building a community for for the sake of what? Like maybe the chance of like elevation. 
Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. 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 And I guess, yeah, again, that's why it feels authentic and it doesn't feel fantastical because they're in reality. Yeah. All these pressures, all these like violent things are happening to these kids. So yeah, it's, and especially that end, the end scene where, or the second to last scene, the penultimate scene where we see uh, Beth and Duffy in the basement and Beth is like basically about to just like set fire to the entire school. I was just reminded of like my experiences as a burnt out child but also I was reminded of Heather's and I was reminded yes. of like all the <laughs> like it seemed like a lot of these personal but also pop cultural things cla- came together into this and like bombastic ending that made <laughs> sense and gave, it gave a lasting impression on me and that connection to Heather's too. I was like, kids like that. I know kids like yes. that. <laughs> and yes. they like it for a reason. It's because it's the outer projection of the violence they feel is is done to them emotionally. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, everything really does feel life or death. I, yeah. I, I kind of get annoyed when people say that, but it is true. <laughs> yeah. I could, just because it's a cliche. Like, it's like, yes, yes, we get it. Like, it's life or death. It's life or death. Yeah, we get it. Theater is life or death. Other, why would we go to the theater? Blah, blah, blah. Because we're, we're in so extreme. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. But it, like, really is it really is at that level mm-hmm. when you're that age and when there's so much pressure put upon you and you're just realizing you're not – you you're not a kid anymore and you can't be a kid and there's no going back. And it's, it's almost like, I wish I could preserve that. And I think for some, the thought is, well, I'll just like destroy everything. Yeah. (laughs) Then I'll just destroy everything. And then like, I'll have that last like good memory of like, of being young and like being on top of the world and then I don't Mm -hmm. have to experience all of like the negative aspects of life that are surely to come yeah and I also felt like Beth was at different points in the play but especially at this moment kind of grasping for control because at that moment she's like I won it's like my party to do whatever I want with and I want to blow everyone up yeah and yeah it, it and I think that perhaps Duffy is seeing that and seeing it for what it is, which is kind of like a Beth needs help. Right. So, right. Yeah. And all I can hope is that they both don't blow up in that basement, but we don't know, do we? I guess we don't. We don't know. Who knows? The director figured it out. Uh, (laughs) That's their job, right? It's not our job. Yeah, it's not my job. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think Duffy can see that this is just this is a person who's never been able to make her own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, now that she has the agency to, she doesn't she doesn't actually really know what she wants. No. And it's kind of scary. So what what is the what is the thought she goes to? Well, I'll just destroy it. Yeah. Then I then I don't have to decide. Then I don't have to make the wrong choice and people won't be angry at me and I won't feel stupid. Yeah. If I just never have to make another decision again, I, I can feel safe and yes. I can feel like I'm smart. Nobody will tell me I'm not smart if nobody exists. If nobody exists. Basically. If I don't, yeah. And if I can't make a mistake. Yes. Oh my gosh. We 
that is something I, I, I know as a teacher, I am always trying to enforce with my students is if we make a mistake, it's okay. It's okay. Exactly. Because I only had one or two teachers that ever did that for me. And I think right. I would have been a lot better off if I had had more to be like, it's okay to fail sometimes. Yeah. Which is kind of what Duffy says in that last flashback scene of the play. It's okay. I even wrote it down in my notes because I was like, this is, <laughs> this is what I got out of the play was, yeah, but sometimes, <laughs> but sometimes you don't do a good job. Sometimes you do a really bad job and it's okay. You just do the best you can do. And I was like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's the wisdom of a child. Yeah. A child who, I mean, children a lot of times often repeat things that are being said to them by adults. So I was like, wow, Duffy yes. must have good role models in her life that are yeah. telling her this. And Beth, yeah. obviously we see, because Beth's mom talks to her, we see that Beth does not have that. No. What I hope people can see in that scene is also just the cycle yeah. of um, certain ways of thinking about success and certain relationships to failure. Mm -hmm. And I, my hope is that people don't necessarily blame Beth's mom, but mm -hmm. perhaps see how well, maybe this is a much deeper rooted issue. Maybe yeah. this is an issue in the way that we speak to children or the way that children are raised because children ultimately become the adults that they were raised by. Yeah, for they sure. Internalize all those values. It's, it's really, it's just, it's nobody's fault, mm -hmm. honestly. It's a, it's a social issue that I've definitely come to be familiar with, so... Yeah. I hope we can just be very forgiving of each other. I hope we can for forgive ourselves for any of our trespasses as well and just try to learn from it instead of just shutting down. And <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah. And I mean, that leads really well into my final question that I always ask every playwright <laughs> that I coerce onto this show um, is what do you want the audience to come away with after reading or seeing your play? I hope they come away with compassion um, for themselves and also those around them in their community and um, just see that the way that people behave, it's, it's not that you should be asking what's wrong with you. It should, it should be more, Oh my God, what happened to you? I, I mean, I can't, I can't uh, take um, credit for that phrase it's from a book that I'm reading right now, um, <laughs> which was actually called "What Happened to You." It's by Oprah Winfrey and this the psychologist who works at Northwestern. I can't remember his name, but it's mostly the psychologist. So he yeah. goes into um, the whole like actual like physiological response to trauma and how that becomes internalized in you as an adult and like influences your behaviors. Blah 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 blah. But that's ultimately what I hope people come away with after reading or seeing or hearing this play um, is compassion because mm -hmm. it's so, it's so, so, so lacking in, in a society that encourages people to compete with each other constantly. Yeah. Constant competition. Like there's no like reprieve. I mean, you hear all this, the memes like, uh, like rise and grind. Ha ha ha. Like, let's get this bread. Yeah. And it's like, okay. Yeah. They're cute and everything. It's funny. Yeah. Like we all have to work. We all have to do stuff, but yeah. what are you working towards? 
what are you doing it for? Mm -hmm. Are you really doing it for yourself? Or are you doing it for somebody else? I that's that's basically what I hope people come away with. And also just acknowledging there are certain factors that force people to behave a certain way. Like I just yeah. I don't want to ignore the fact that Beth is a woman of color in an industry or hoping to pursue an industry that is still predominantly white and cisgendered male. Yeah. In order to make it, in order to be taken seriously in that industry, you kind of have to mimic the behavior of the majority. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's seen as being rational. That's seen as being scientific. Any divergence is seen as like being unstable. So there's a, there's a line that Duffy says um, in that penultimate scene. I think she says something like, I might misquote my own play. That's okay. <laughs> I think she says something like, if Danny was so stupid, then why do you sound just like him? <gasps> yeah. Yep. When when you're in that position, you – I guess what I want to say is I've seen so many women of color just adopt the behavior of the white man who's doing better than them in hopes that they'll receive, like, the crumbs of whatever success might lie ahead. And I just hope that we can see – not again, this is like forgive yourself for behaving that way. It's not your fault, but yeah. just think about what message you're sending to other people. You know? Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's yeah, I think that's that's great. I mean, compassion is uh something that uh I think you're right we are lacking quite a bit in uh, our overly capitalist society. Um, it's something I try and enforce in my students and something I try to practice in myself every day because mm -hmm. self-compassion, man, that's something too yes. that I think a lot of us could use. Yes. So yeah, guys, read the play. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining me here today. Um, I had a fantastic time and I learned hey. a lot. I really did. I learned a lot uh, about your play, but also just about the world. So if the listeners <laughs> out there like want to find you and learn more about your work, because obviously they do now, uh, where should they go and do that? Okay, so you can follow me on Instagram. My uh, handle is Khomeiling. It's my Mandarin name. I will spell it for you. H-E-M-E-I-L-I-N-G, uh, Khomeiling. You can also find me on New Play Exchange at Alex Lin. Um, most of my plays that I've been ready to share with the world are up there, and they are free to download and read at your whim, so go right on ahead. And I also have a website, alexandralinholden.com, that you can feel free to peruse in your free time. <laughs> yeah. Alex's website will be in the show notes of this episode uh, because that is probably a good place to find all of the other things. Uh, yes. So if you guys just forget and you don't want to re-listen or something then it is there for you just going, yeah. it is there for you i put it there for you well once again thank you so much alex for being here today and thank all of you out there for listening and if you want to contact me to recommend guests or plays i should talk about on the podcast you can email me at the playmates podcast at gmail.com or you can fill out our Google form on the podcast website, which is playmatespodcast.weebly.com. 
You can follow us on Instagram at, at Playmates Podcast to get consistent updates on the podcast. And there's a little link tree in the bio where you can see the website as well as my own personal website if for some reason you want to see that. And links to how you can support the podcast if you would like to. So feel free to just check those things out as well. And if you can, take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really does mean a lot to me, but it also helps others to discover the podcast because that's how Apple promotes things and stuff. Y'all know the drill. And so that's all for this episode and for season two. So before I sign off, I just want to thank you guys out there for your continued listenership and for encouraging me to continue this podcast. I can't believe it's been a year? Like, it's been almost a year since it began. I will be taking a short break between now and September for the summer because I'm currently a full-time theater teacher counselor person at a day camp, and my disabled ass is tired, so I'm going to take a little break for the summer and return in the fall. I'm hoping for a possible collab episode with another theater podcast, which I will keep a surprise as either a bonus summer episode in August or more likely as an opener of season three on the first Friday in September. So be on the lookout for that. But finally, get out there and enjoy your summer. Theater's finally opening up, so go see a show if you can, relax, have fun, and I'll see you all in September. Bye for now.